Hello, my name is Michelle Yanachan, the wandering book collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent. I'm joined by the writer, Doreen Cunningham, to discuss her debut, Soundings, Journeys in the Company of Wales. From the lagoons of Mexico to Arctic glaciers, Doreen followed the route of the grey whale on one of the longest mammalian migrations with Max, her little boy, by her side. Her book mixes up memoir with nature, climate and science writing. Doreen, welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. In your prologue, you write how you wanted to show your son Max, how the mothers and calves of the grey whale travel thousands of miles I quote, to prove to him that it is possible to do anything, to overcome anything with just the two of us. You add, it was me who needed convincing though. Even though things didn't always go to plan on your trip, did you convince yourself? Uh, yes, I did. Um, I think that what I was lacking at the beginning of the trip was any sense of community. Um, and I had lost my own identity, as all new mothers do in becoming a mum, but also in understanding how I fit in the world. I had sort of fallen out of my life, really. I'd found that um, I wasn't able to afford childcare, despite having you know, a good job as a journalist. I wasn't well paid enough to afford childcare when I had a child. Um, I went through a rough breakup and I went through court. I used up all my savings and ended up um, first in a refuge and then in a hostel. Um, so it was a real wake up and I ended up in a world I did not recognize and that did not recognize me. I was used to earning my own way and feeling competent and I worked a lot of the time on climate doing something that I felt was meaningful and um, suddenly I just didn't know what my place was and didn't know who my people were and so I reached out uh, to the whales and they did give me an identity partly whale identity I think and by following them I put myself in a position where I had to accept help I had to reach out for help and I discovered again that my community was all around me so yes I ended up feeling quite safe in the world after feeling really unsafe at the beginning of the journey I think. And when you conceived the idea of the journey which became two trips each a month long Mexico first then Alaska, was the experience always going to end up as a book because that was the way to fund the trip? Or, or was it more romantic than that, say written as a gift for Max later in life, the story of your trip together? Uh, I never intended to write a book. Um, I always thought I'd be a writer. I, I wrote bad poetry when I was younger and then I worked in journalism and I loved, in a way, I started off in the World Service newsroom where everything has to be very translatable into all sorts of languages and um, you can't you know use an extra word so I learned to write in a very sparse way and I loved that and I loved doing reporting in that style where you never wasted a word um, but no I didn't know I was going to write a book the journey was done out of desperation I really didn't know how to rebuild myself from that point point. Um, 
because I wasn't earning enough to rebuild myself financially. Uh, and actually, I had to lie to get a bank loan to finance the journey in the first place. I pretended I was still working. Um, and I think that the person on the other end of the phone at the bank chose to believe me because from looking at my bank account, it was very clear that I wasn't. Um, so some luck there. And um, writing the book, I didn't think of doing until much later. So the first journey in the book, going to the Arctic as a young journalist investigating climate change happened in 2006. And following the grey whale journey happened in 2013. And it wasn't um, until about five years ago, I suppose, I thought, oh, this needs to be a book and what it was was having had um, more children I have three children and I had two very young babies I had twins so I guess there were two aspects to it I was stuck at home with twins which uh, for someone with very itchy feet is tricky and my then six-year-old um, and the Extinction Rebellion movement was born so I was at home fairly isolated I was a single parent again um, and watching scientists crying on TV. And I had myself worked in climate science before becoming a journalist. I had a scientific background and I realized that I had taken my eye off the ball um, and I had not realized that uh, the climate was unraveling in my lifetime. Uh, and I was really brought up short. I felt <clears throat> a lot of fear, a lot of grief, a lot of responsibility for these little people that I'd brought into the world. And I thought, what can I do? Um, and when I looked at my life through a certain lens, I realized that it was all about climate. So my early obsession with the sea, with the natural world, with whales from having grown up as an island child in the Channel Islands. Um, I spent part of my childhood in Jersey and was in the water almost every day and my early relationships, very strong relationships with animals, then my journalistic career, um, the trip to the Arctic, where I was uh, so privileged to be, you know, to, to meet a family who took me in. I think that kind of generosity is actually very typical of the Inupiaq. Um, and the Kaliak family took me in, basically adopted me. Uh, Julia Kaliak named herself my Inupiaq mum you know I had those very strong relationships there and of course fell in love um, and that meant that I could front the issue of climate justice in the book which is terribly important and talk about how colonialism is such an intrinsic part of the climate crisis and then the grey whale journey was just the perfect structure for the book so it kind of was shouting out to be written and I couldn't say no that's um, that's how it became a book, but I was wasn't expecting it up until that point. So, is it a book with a bit of a climate mission? Like, were you sometimes campaigning, maybe inadvertently? Um, I don't think I was campaigning. I was definitely writing the book as an act of activism, bringing these issues together. But just. Rather than campaigning, I'd say I was explaining everything that I had come across in as open a way as possible. And also just explaining very openly my relationships with um, all the characters in the book, including the whales, 
talking very, very honestly about what I'd experienced in my own life since becoming a mother. And um, what I hope the book might do overall is draw a sort of a parallel between violence against women and indigenous people and violence against the planet. Um, and I hoped that those things would happen, but I tried very hard to stick to the personal story so that people could draw their own conclusions about what was happening. So the, you know, there are factual parts in the book and there's my own emotional reaction, but I try not to entangle the two. Well, it might be the most natural thing in the world for you to produce a book that blends the personal and science, but it doesn't fit nicely on a particular shelf. Is it because this book is simply a reflection of your reality and your interests, or was it also strategic embedding some science in between these human interest stories? Um, I felt like it was necessary for people to understand some of the science, to understand the whales, to understand the ocean that we live in. So it was more to make everything more intimate. Um, science for me is, is part of my life. It is how I think about things. I, I, as I say, I studied science and how I observe the world is partly as a scientist, I suppose. So, um, Ooh, I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, it's also about when I discovered things. So this isn't science. This is some of the history that's in the book. But there's a little bit of history when I arrive in the town of Bukjavik, which is the northernmost point of Alaska. I arrive there as a complete stranger, knowing nobody, um, and welcomed into this uh, family of indigenous whale hunters. And I learned um, quite quickly about the history of colonial violence in that town um, and also about how ancient the whale hunt was and how it supports the entire sort of cultural, spiritual and social life of the Inupiat. And I learned about it by reading so I share some of those moments of reading with my readers I just wanted people to learn things in the way that I had learned them and very often I'm being told about politics or science or history along the way and they're really important context for the journey and for understanding why we are where we are now and why the whales are where they are and why Ukyarvik is the way it is. Um, and so I tried to be open. It's It's been done in the spirit of openness and I did find it difficult to sort of switch in tone. Um, and I didn't want to lecture people. So I have just tried to weave it in as an experience that I had of learning as well. I mean, it got me thinking about whether we need to write the climate story differently, if we need a different way of hooking a reader instead of citing carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere in parts per million. You know, when you lived with that family, the whale hunters, and were traveling with them on the ice, you wrote that you felt so alive, so connected to other people, to the natural world. If only I could feel that way again and give that feeling to Max. How to give that feeling to readers too, so that they feel connected to the natural world? 
Well, um, I had to get the readers to trust me. And that was really interesting. So I, I decided straight up that I was happy to give this book my life. Um, it's quite a raw book. Uh, it contains a lot of my um, most questionable decisions, um, my mistakes, basically. Um, and uh, it also contains a lot of rejections one person pointed out. And I also was very keen not to try to make myself too likable. I wanted to be very honest about who I am and about the mistakes I made and the fact that I'm very sweary. I've just, that's why I hesitated before. I was trying to stop myself from swearing on your podcast, but there's quite a bit of swearing in the book. And um, (laughs) uh, I also felt it was very, very important that as I was writing a memoir, and it was about real people. And there are some meanies in the book, although they're very well disguised. It wasn't fair to write about other people unless I was laying myself bare the most, exposing myself the most. I felt like that was really important. So that was a decision I made very early on. And I had a really interesting discussion. Um, I, I, after I'd written the first draft, it, it went to editors and I had a was lucky enough to have two wonderful editors working on the book, one in the UK and one in the US. And my US editor, uh, Valerie at Scribner, um, <laughs> we had our first chat and she was like, yeah, so, you know, really excited to be working on the book and everything. Um, however, I still don't quite get why you would do this. You know, we're still not quite with the narrator. And um, I was like, well, Valerie, what do you mean? It was obviously the most obvious thing to do, stuck in a hostel. Who wouldn't go and follow the grey whale migration at that point? And she's like, hmm, yeah, we just need to talk this through. And so I ended up having to to think about more about why I am the sort of person I am, why I was the sort of child who spent a lot of time outside and um, discussed with Valerie that, okay, I needed to show that there was violence in my childhood. And that's why I took refuge in the natural world that was embedded in my character very early on. Um, And so it was more natural for me to run away after whales uh, and also include a little bit more information about the... um, difficult breakup I'd had and the relationship and some of the dynamics in the relationship with my son's father that I was also in a way fleeing and trying to overcome trauma from both of those aspects childhood and adult relationships Um, and I ended up laying myself even more bare really but I really trusted Valerie on that and I feel like the more authentic I could be in writing about me, um, the more likely it would be that readers would come on the journey with me and sort of trust what I was seeing and hearing. And, and how reliable was your memory of the times that you weren't with a notebook in hand? Did you have to rely on recall a lot? And, and how did that feel as a journalist, that blurring of fact and memory? So um, I had a huge amount of video archive the initial trip to the Arctic in 2006 was um, 
a burst from a bursary or made possible by a bursary called the um, Anassis bursary, one of these incredible things that used to exist at the BBC. I don't think they exist any, anymore, anywhere. Um, but if you pitched uh, something that they believed in, you got enough money to go anywhere and do whatever you wanted. And you weren't actually supposed to do any work because you were supposed to be kind of regrouping and, you know, gathering your creative powers to come back. And it was sort of supposed to be a bit of an escape from the news cycle. I worked in news um, so I went off and I spent quite a lot of time filming the sea ice doing nothing uh, filming the light change imperceptibly over hours you know I really went to town um, and just kind of observationally filming my family so actually I had a huge amount of material and on the grey whale journey as well I kept a very sort of sparse notebook it's mostly like you know we had to wait five hours for a bus today oh I'm so tired but it does kind of remind me of points that I would have forgotten otherwise but again on the grey whale journey I was filming my toddler a lot and for instance there's a scene where he touches a baby grey whale he sings in fact and the baby grey whale comes up to the boat and he touches it and there's some quite funny conversation on the boat um, and it's it's straight off the video I didn't have to make up the dialogue at all um, so a lot of the dialogue is straight out of recordings I guess as a journalist I got used to recording and and I was very much an observational character anyway, you know, on the sidelines, not the life and soul, kind of watching everything. Um, and I didn't really have to make much up. Uh, I just had to arrange it all. Following up what Valerie said to you, um, her kind of scepticism perhaps about how normal and natural it is to want to head off to follow the whale migration. You and I have a mutual friend, Elena, who I noticed you thank in your acknowledgements. Another journalist, brilliant one at that. And when she introduced us by email, she wrote, when Doreen told me a few years ago that she was dropping everything to go follow the whales migration for months and months on a shoestring, from Mexico to bloody Alaska with her two-year-old boy in tow, I actually <laughs> thought she had lost her mind. It goes to show what a boring, uninspired friend I was. Doreen has always been way ahead of us all I'm very happy to admit I love that <laughs> classic Elena generous big-hearted Elena so I, generous so kind when you provoke that kind of reaction and friends and colleagues thinking that you'd lost your mind did that make you dig in or did that make you wobble um uh, it made me upset um and you know I address it in the book. I mean, there were people saying, well, he's two, he's not going to remember it, you know, wait till he's older. Um, <clears throat> but I was very isolated. I was actually finding it hard to stay in touch with my friends at that time. Um, I could barely afford to phone anybody. Uh, and I was working around a young child. So I was so, so desperate that I had to ignore them. But it made me wobble. It did make me wobble. And perhaps that's also why it took so long to think of making a book out of it, um, because it took me a long time to realise what I'd done. I I probably diminished it in my head. It did really help me. And what I realised as I was writing the book, I didn't realise this before, but um, I was learning how to mother off 
the whales. I didn't have a good relationship with my own mother. There's an enormous amount of trauma in the kind of line of mothers um, in my Irish family. And the bond was completely disrupted. She was very unwell, um, very inspiring in terms of literature and in other ways and doing her best. Um, but I was absolutely at sea, not knowing uh, how to go forward with this relationship and feeling very little confidence. I suppose that was the main thing, not having the confidence that I had the skills to be a good mum, particularly because I felt so rejected by the world. You know, I just didn't fit in anywhere. And um, that's the whales kind of guided me through that time. So people could say what they wanted really uh, it really did feel like the only option available to me, which I know sounds really strange, but there we are. I don't think I would have done it otherwise. No, so when you reflect now on that time traveling with Max, following the whales, what's the most vivid of memories? Is it the whales? Is it Max's very wide-eyed perspective on the world? Is it the, the kind of tight unit of you two together. It's a tight unit. It's exactly the tight unit. Yes, it's that we got that time together that nobody could criticize me during. You know, we were, we, we might wave at people sort of as we passed, but nobody got close enough to say, oh, you're not doing that right, or oh, you shouldn't be doing that. And ah, um, uh, there's just this feeling of absolute bliss. When I think of, you know, being on a train with him, we, we took public transport up the West Coast and, um, there was this one train journey where we had an overnight berth on Amtrak. I think it was on the way up to Monterey. And we just went into that little box on the train. We had a window. We had these seats which folded down, which we snuggled up into. And it was, I suppose, like being in a womb, like being held really safely. And it was just our little world, um, us and the whales. And of course, we met such kind people all the way up the journey. I couldn't have done it without the help of all these strangers who really took us into their homes and their hearts and helped us. Um, So there were other people. But we were also very much protected from the world and its expectations of how I should be behaving as a mother and as an adult. Yeah, I know about that. Um, (laughs) Would you, during the way that you speak about that, would you like to be doing that again right now, living that life, the traveler, the migrant in a way? Do you miss the movement? I really struggle with being still and um, it's something I have thought about a lot uh, and that's also why I found this crazy energy to write a book while I was looking after baby twins during the pandemic. Um, I mean in a way the pandemic by confining me and getting rid of any fear of missing out on anything uh, meant that I wasn't distracted but um, I was so exhausted by the end of it and realized how much I had put into it. I suppose once it was actually out on the shelves, I was like, whoa, I don't feel very well. I feel really tired. Um, But I do have this, it's called novelty seeking behavior, where I need to be moving, actually. And so I found a way of going away in my head, of going away on the journey again and savoring it and you know, reliving those moments of meeting the Kaliaks again. And I love that it's on paper. There's one scene that I return to where I meet 
um, a particular hunter for the first time, Billy. And I read that scene uh, sometimes because I miss him. And, you know, I thought really carefully about those scenes uh, and it, it helps me to read them again when I can't move. Um, but it's, it's it, it would feel a bit... I don't know, just so privileged to say, yes, I want to be a migrant when so many people are being forced to leave their homes. So that's a kind of a hard one to answer. Would you like to be like Wales, constantly migrating back and forth, north and south, even though that's not much novelty because it's the journey on repeat? I don't think I want to be a whale. That journey looks really exhausting to have to do so much. Um, but I tell you, when I was living in Ukjavik, um, first of all, I joined the whale hunt and went out onto the sea ice. So we were camping uh, miles from land um, uh, at the lead, which is where a crack forms in the ice that's frozen basically all the way up to the North Pole a crack forms and as spring comes it melts and at some point one of the cracks opens up and turns into this channel of water along which uh, beluga first and then bowhead whales will migrate from west to east basically along the top of the planet um, and being out there far from land I just I mean, that experience changed me um, and being accepted into the crew really changed me. You know, at first they were extremely suspicious of this white woman who'd come along and was watching them and filming things. Um, and they're often used to being criticised about the whaling. But I knew enough about how outsiders have spent so much time trying to impose their own views and their own own culture on the people of the Arctic that I wasn't interested in doing that myself so I was very open to even giving up my vegetarianism and eating whale you know going quite far and by the end um, you know they said they would miss me and they 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 I just felt such a sense of belonging with them there and such an appreciation and felt so privileged to be kind of one of the crew it was really wonderful feeling um, and after the whale hunt, uh, I went just with a couple of members of the family to go goose hunting to the kind of summer camp where um, the Inupiaq families would have little areas where they would camp at the different times of year when it's appropriate to hunt these animals, basically when they don't have young um, caribou, geese, ptarmigan. And we we were hunting geese. And... I did love that, you know, there were these different seasons which were defined by um, the food that people needed to eat. There was whaling season, then there was time to go out goose hunting. And actually, that time out goose hunting, there was something about it, um, maybe because there was less jeopardy. You know, it was scary being out on the ice. People sometimes have to be rescued by helicopter if the ice floats off or you could fall down a crack and that would be you done for. Um, I was very aware of that jeopardy. But goose hunting, there wasn't the same level of jeopardy. And I just somehow you could feel that there were no rules that apply to you. It's the freest I've ever felt. It was one of the best experiences of my entire life being out there. And I think that perhaps that's more the ideal, um, which is totally unattainable to me, but has a sort of dreamlike quality, the idea of 
being in this place for some of the time, then going there because it's slightly better to be at this time of year. You know, not massive trips, but in a community which has freedom to relate to the land that it's on in an intimate way and in a way which works with um, the natural world and whatever else is living there. It was all about the relationships, uh, the kind of reciprocal relationship with um, the animals and the land and the sea and that's what was so wonderful about it and actually it was the first place I ever went where I couldn't run away or I couldn't run for it or or go off when I felt I had itchy feet I had to stay still because it was such a dangerous place to be if I'd gone off on my own into that white landscape I'd have been finished I had to stick very close to the members of the Kaliak um, family who were massively generous and caring and um, it was by being still that I actually reached an incredible sense of belonging uh, and happiness in that setting. I wanted to talk about the idea of home. You write this, before my son was born, I had a home in London, a busy social life and a successful career as a journalist. When I became a mother, things began to twist and snap. And that's when you refer Doreen to living in a hostel, a shared house for single mothers. For someone whose home has swung between those two and also this family of Arctic whale hunters, maybe even to suitcase, what what do you think about the notion of home? Uh, For me, it's very difficult. I um, don't feel at home in any particular place. I would love to find somewhere where I felt really at home. I did feel at home for a little while there with the Kaliaks, but I was an outsider and I couldn't make it work for me to stay. Um, and I think, yes, I think it's about finding a relationship with the place that you're in or perhaps just accepting that it will never feel entirely comfortable, maybe because of my own psychological makeup. Maybe I kind of, don't feel safe enough to feel safe somewhere I'm not sure what goes into it it's actually something I do want to explore particularly with respect to Ireland um, where my mother is from and where I feel a very strong connection but have never actually lived I feel like it would be really helpful for me to explore um, more of what it would mean to identify with that island Um, but I can't answer that question. I'm really sorry. Home is a really difficult concept for me. You title a section of the book Home and another one Belonging. Um, and, and there's a quote that I remember, which is, I had to give up my habit of bolting and against all my expectations, I found myself belonging. That was when you were living with the whale hunters, which is, as you just said, somewhere that you, you felt great intimacy where are you on that on that line of bolting and belonging at this stage of your life? Um, well, if I look at the news, I want to bolt, but I don't know where to. Uh, I want my children to be safe. I don't know where they will be safe. And there are many, many people who are in much less safe situations. Um, <sighs> I I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Um, I feel like community is the answer. That's the answer the whales gave me. And so I return to that again and again in my 
head. Um, I think though, as a single parent, life can be very isolating. It can be very, very tough financially. And so perhaps there's always going to be part of me that wants to run for it. Um, and that is about looking at what you do have rather than what you don't have. And that's the case for um, climate as well, because one of the arguments that was always used um, whenever I was talking to people about it throughout my life was, well, it's too late. You know, people would say it's too late straight away and we can go very quickly from, oh, it's not happening to, well, it's too late. Um, and it's not too late. We still have whales in the ocean, you know, singing, literally singing across ocean basins. And we still have birds. We have a lot to lose. Um, and so it's probably really urgent. Now you come to think of it, I don't really want to be talking through something that I haven't thought through very well um, out loud almost, but it's probably really important to find home for all of us to find home, even if it doesn't mean that we're you know, necessarily really settled for a long time to find home where we are and to realize that it's worth fighting for in terms of um, looking very carefully at our own behavior and how we're relating to it and trying to protect it, kind of becoming um, protectors of wherever we are. You mix up chronology in the book, traveling between different times in your life, that, that Billy trip, and um, which was before you became a mother and then you and Max following the migration, which was itself a fragmented journey done in sections, whizzing back to the UK in between, I know. How did you come to choose this kind of chopped up layering of chapters? Um, well, there was a lot to get into the book and I didn't know how to do it. So when I decided I was going to write a book, I enrolled myself on um, a course called Novel in a Year, which is where you basically pay for deadlines. Um, you send off a certain amount of words every six weeks and then you get feedback uh, from a lovely woman called Andrea Mason. Um, but you're not really allowed to dwell on it. You have to then just get on and write the next lot of words. So I had all the material out and then I went to do an MA um, and I was struggling because uh, I didn't know how to write a book and I'm, I'm, I'm still worried that I haven't, you know, done the material justice. It was really obvious that it was a story that could be good if it was written well enough. Um, and I didn't know how to arrange it and it was terribly fragmented at the beginning. So I had the whale journey with flashbacks to the Arctic in it. And one of my tutors was uh, Blake Morrison, <laughs> who's a famous memoir writer in the UK. And he, uh, <laughs> I really bothered him. So after every workshop, I would be like, well, Blake, I'm having an issue with this. And Blake, I'm not sure what to do about this. I really got my money's worth out of Blake. And one day I went to him with this, just saying, look, it's all over the place. I don't know what to do. And he said, well, have you read Jenny Diskey's Skating to Antarctica? And um, that's where she writes about a trip to Antarctica, but interweaves it with her childhood and actually her own difficult relationship with her um very abusive mother or parents and um she used alternate chapters and it was fixed so it's alternate chapters but then there are other things which need to go in you know there's um 
the time as a journalist when all the deniers were being put on air and it was very confusing for someone with a science background you know someone reasonably junior who was having to do what I was told by editors but not really understanding why the skeptics were dominating why the conversations didn't make sense um, you know people were talking economics up against scientific facts they were just doing everything to confuse conversations and it was like this terrible kind of white noise that's what you know motivated me to to get this bursary and go and work out what was actually happening for myself because it was so confusing listening to what was happening on the radio programs that I was working for so there are flashbacks to that and flashbacks to childhood courtesy of Valerie um, and to um, the relationship that I left uh, with my son's father um, which are a bit longer also courtesy of Valerie and they had to fit in along the whale journey um, kind of, but but points came up actually where it just worked uh there's a point later on in the book where I'm having to cross borders and um uh it's a little bit nerve-wracking traveling as a single mother you're always eyed with a bit of suspicion by border officials you know are you kidnapping this child especially when they're quite young and um I have particular court documents that I need to show and so that was the perfect place for a flashback to court and um there were plenty of opportunities to talk about my mum alongside my mothering so it um built itself with some kind of careful curating particularly from my UK editor Rose at Virago so I got help with that because yes there's a lot of different things to say in the book and it took a lot of work to make sure that it flowed appropriately and wasn't kind of jarring for the reader I think Seamless, Doreen, seamless. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> as well as form, Doreen, I wanted to talk about genre because I feel like I'm seeing more of these kinds of books straddling shelves, not being boxed, boxed in. Is that reflective, do you think, of something? I don't know, like the times we live in. Um, I don't know. I mean, this book is a product of being a mother and a scientist and having a terrible time all at the same time. Um, maybe it's to do with more women writers who um, are would be very connected with the writing matter that they're writing about. You know, I'm writing about my, my relationship w with Wales, but actually for me, that's about my relationship with the world, my childhood, my mum. It's all kind of, it's not, I can't separate it out. Um, perhaps there's just more freedom now, or perhaps there are more uh, uh, women writing about what they want. And I do feel like that there is a le less separation for me in um, writing about the natural world than some nature memoirs I've read. Uh, and I don't do that on purpose. It's just, I have to do it because for me, I'm always experiencing being in it. It might be a sensory thing. Um, I'm neurodivergent, so it may be to do with that. Um, but I think it's good. I think it's good that the world is opening up. Then hopefully there will be books that support everyone. When I was writing this book, I uh, also wanted to do, um, I mean, I had 
when I was writing, when I was on the whale journey, you asked earlier if I thought it would be a book and it, the thought had crossed my mind. I want to write a book which helps people who feel they're being bullied. And that had been in my head. And then that wasn't what kind of catalyzed me getting on with it. But I do want this book to help people, particularly mothers who are feeling isolated or trodden on or excluded or confined. And, um, uh, you know, I, ha I have to give it everything. I couldn't just write about the whales and what they're eating. Um, I don't know. Different people are getting into publishing, I suppose. Perhaps that's why. Are you more or less hopeful at Prospect for Our Planet than when you wrote this and you were kind of screaming at the way that we're smashing up the planet? Um, I don't know. Um, I feel like uh, at least I've tried to um, put down my thoughts about it and support people who um, might be finding out what I found out at the beginning of this book you know where we are I felt like it was important that this book was very open emotionally because um, there's a lot of grief to be felt before you can really look at what's happening and a lot of fear and so I'm open about those emotions in the book because I want people to feel accompanied I feel like even if I can't do anything about it at least I can show I was here and I was feeling too so that people don't feel so alone if they're going through this journey of thinking about climate and because I'm not perfect and yes I did take flights on that trip I try very hard not to fly now but sometimes it's you know absolutely unavoidable um I'm not telling anyone off I'm just saying well this is this is the world I've encountered this is what I did with my freedom this is what helped me when I was desperate um and look how beautiful it all is and look how funny it all is you know look how great it all is the arctic's amazing being a mum is incredible it's the best thing ever i don't care if i never earn money again which i probably won't although you know so you've bought my book so thank you very much exactly. <laughs> um it was i don't know I, I don't know about hope either i remember on the ma um uh someone who was sitting next to me did say there's got to be hope when I was talking about the grey whale die off and there is hope in that not only is there a grey whale die off going on which is very probably caused by warming of the arctic and a reduction in the amount of the food there the little amphipods that grey whales like to eat but the hope for me is that there is this incredible whale who has been nicknamed Earhart by researchers in Washington State near Puget Sound, um, who has discovered a new food source and who has been seen. She's one of the founders anyway, who's discovered this new food source of a group called the Sounders. And she has been seen leading other whales to this food source. It's ghost shrimp, which live in the intertidal zone. So it's um it's actually really dangerous for whales to go and feed on the ghost shrimp because if they misjudge timing or direction they could get stranded then uh, it, it in in you know close to shore often there are higher levels of toxins they could be hit by boats in fact Earhart did get hit by a boat but she survived she does have the scars to show for it um and uh the, the, the sounders, the group of whales that use this kind of stopping off 
emergency food bank during the migration has been growing year on year. So every year more emaciated whales are coming, feeding on the ghost shrimp and leaving in better condition. So there are people and whales out there who are able to lead us to um, better futures and to adapt and to show resilience. And um, I love that Earhart is a female um, and I love that she's possibly changing the destiny for some of her species. And that's what gives me hope. The idea that we might all kind of just look around and think about what we could do better and, and help each other. So I don't see it as this giant, um, is the world going to end or not? It's more about how we can live our lives uh, in whatever circumstances are given to us and how we can support the people around us and how we can live better incrementally um, and step away from, you know, the the large capitalist structures which do have extraction at their heart um, and have caused terrible damage around the world. Um, I find solace and hope in thinking about Earhart, who's just one whale, but who's done all that. Are you working on another book? I'm not, but that question that I staggered and fumbled over before is actually what I'm thinking about, about home and, you know, what is home on a planet where habitable land is um, becoming, becoming more scarce, when so many people are having to flee, find new homes, where people are dying en route to finding new homes, where um, politics affects so much what's safe and what isn't, and what's happening to um, the non-human species that we share the planet with in terms of their homes. Uh, and I, you know, as a mother, I kind of feel like I am a home to my children um wherever we are and for their emotions and I'm you know supposed to be their safe space when I'm not shouting about how messy their rooms are um I'm interested still in my relationship with my mother who now has advanced dementia and the way that we generally connect with her is by singing to her um and of course it's always Irish songs because that's what she used to sing to us um and in being there with her and singing and with all my children singing these songs as well, I'm realising maybe that that's where my home is. Maybe it's somewhere in <sighs> something to do with song and listening to the songs as well. You know, I didn't I didn't read nursery rhymes when I was a child. I mean, I mean, or, or fairy stories or anything like that. Those weren't my archetypes. But singing some of those songs that I hadn't sung for or heard for so long, I realised that they they formed me. They formed structures in me, and they formed um, thought patterns in me and expectations in me. And I'm interested in exploring that a little bit more and maybe finding out where those songs come from you know who actually wrote them where did they come from and why are they still sustaining me how old are they and is that what we're going to end up with um the kind of the songs we sing to each other um i'm interested in exploring that Doreen Cunningham thank you for joining me on the Wandering Book Collector thank you so much for having me it's been such a pleasure and thanks to the supporter of this podcast Abercrombie and Kent goodbye